Film director John Favreau and acclaimed LA chef Roy Choi made movie magic with the groundbreaking film Chef in 2014, and now they are back, cooking together, and they invited their friends for the ride. The Chef Show is coming to Netflix on June 7th. You can watch Chef Roy Choi, who took LA and the world over with his Kogi food trucks, and John Favreau, who you know made Iron Man, in one of the most entertaining and fun food shows you will ever see. Subscribe to Netflix if you haven't already, and get ready for the fun and the food on June seventh. Before we begin this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone for listening to our show. This week, we are really pleased to present another eighty-sixth history episode, and we will be back next week with another Let's Talk About Chef. If you want to have your restaurant shout out on the show, or you want to connect with us for any reason at all, please reach out to us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail dot com, or you can follow us at letstalkaboutchef on Instagram, or you can follow me personally at Chef Brian Clark. We have had a lot of questions about a website and merchandise, and we are working on getting everything ready for you as soon as possible. That's enough for me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef Eighty Sixth History. I am guilty of ignorance. I think we are all guilty of ignorance. I have always been obsessed with the concept of where food came from, the stories that sit just out of reach, the lives in history that are behind the food that we eat. It's the reason that this show exists in the first place. I wanted to know more. I wanted to tell you more about chefs and food that are important. This week, it's a little bit different. In the past few years, Southern food has exploded onto a global scale. Its influence has reached so far past the Mason-Dixon line that you can easily find its food littering menus everywhere: fried chicken, grits, cornbread, pork. It all comes from the South. The idea that food that comes from the poor, the offcuts, the stuff that the rich didn't want, is something that fascinates me. But what about the food of those who didn't have any other option? What about the food that people were forced to eat, forced to make, and forced to try and survive on? The idea of making something out of nothing may seem romantic, but in today's case, it's something deeper than that. Slavery is a scar on the United States that will never heal. Its roots and absolutely horrible existence will never go away, and even today can be felt and seen in the rise of right-wing American politics. Riots, blatant injustice, and the odd feeling that maybe the past isn't as far away as we may have thought it was. The truth of the matter is that Southern food came from those individuals that were forced to work plantations across the South, taken from their homes and brought across the ocean to be forced to live and work in conditions of violence and brutality that I and you really cannot fathom how they did it. Nor would I ever have the nerve to try and make analogies about it. It was horrible. The thing that really bothers me about Southern food is that it can all be traced back to these plantations. The food that we worship today came from the mouths of those who had no choice but to eat it, and so they made it delicious. Instead of accepting a fate that was worse than death, they embraced the food that they were given, grew, and spread knowledge of plants and game meats, and created a culture that has withstood long past the world that they lived in. While more and more attention to chefs opening restaurants that focus solely upon the food of the South, 
the Southern recipes and ingredients being the star of their enterprises, it seems to be that the real story of where that food came from is being lost. I am guilty of being ignorant. I was once the chef of a Southern-influenced restaurant about six years ago. I cooked Southern food in a 250-seat juggernaut of a restaurant every day for two years. I read books and studied the cooking of several very famous and prominent Southern chefs that we all know the names of. But even though every single day for those two years, I attempted to make and perfect shrimp and grits, brought crawfish in from Louisiana, and even spent a stunning amount of time trying to perfect a cornbread recipe, I didn't take the time to try and figure out where it actually all came from. If I had, I would probably have done it with a lot more respect and gratitude if I had done it at all. I am not going to spend today spinning doom and gloom. There is enough darkness in the world. Instead, today on 86 History, we are going to talk about the food that came from having no other option but to make it. The magical and beautiful things that Africans brought to and gave to the South not too very long ago. The fact that something wonderful came out of something so absolutely terrible is a gift, but also a burden that a lot of people need to remember happened. And so, today on Let's Talk About Chef presents 86 History, The Southern Discomfort. Plantations were cut off from the outside world. These massive estates of land with a white marble-columned mansion in the center were not connected to anything other than themselves. Roads and bridges to and from the Mississippi River were muddy, horrible passages that every year when the crop had to be sailed on riverboats up to the waiting market, they had to be carefully traveled. The plantation was its own city, its own country, and one with a dark and morbid way of survival. Slaves, as we all know, were brought over to America from Africa. The white and powerful, also known as rich landowners, paid money. A lot of money for the capture and delivery of these human beings who were stolen from their homes all across the continent. Conditions on these ships were disgusting. We have all seen images recreated of those Africans being kept under the deck as they made their way across the water. As they were all from different communities and regions of Africa, it was rare to speak the same language as others on the boats. And so even in the most terrible of places, the melding of cultures began to happen. Some of these Africans carried cola nuts in their pockets. These nuts, if they were placed into the stale drinking water that was provided to them, would help to purify it, and they also contained a staggering amount of natural caffeine. When the cola nuts made landfall, and were eventually planted in the South, they became the prime ingredient of a new beverage called Coca-Cola. Eating on the boats was described by a man who survived the passage. The sailors would throw African yams or sweet potatoes into the crowds at random. A third of the enslaved passengers would never make the voyage. 
Life on plantations was beyond a level of difficulty than we could possibly even begin to imagine. Every week on Saturdays, the rations of food would be passed out to the slaves. They usually contained cornmeal, lard, pork, molasses, peas, greens, and flour. Seeing as the rations were meager at best, the Africans would use the knowledge of farming and the land that they brought over with them and would grow gardens of their own vegetables to help supplement their diets with more nutrition. If you were allowed to grow a garden, it became a community affair, with older slaves that couldn't handle the labor in the fields anymore tending to and maintaining the crops for their peers so that everyone could eat well. Seeing as the rich landowners in the big house would keep all of the good seeds for their own gardens, the slaves' gardens were made up of plants that were seen as unfit for eating by the landowners, who preferred tomatoes, carrots, onions, and potatoes, and lettuce in their meals. Rice, beans, okra, sweet potatoes, and even corn, an ingredient that the Africans learned how to cook and grow from Native Americans who taught them the secrets of the plant would fill their gardens. The Native Americans not only taught them how to grow corn, but also how to add alkaline salt to the corn and grind it up to make grits. And so most morning, hush puppies, cornmeal fried catfish, or even chicken dredged in cornmeal and fried in pork fat would be made to feed and supply the energy that the men and women needed to survive the day in the fields. Every morning, breakfast would be made in the small cabins where the slaves lived, and then workers would head out to the fields. The main crops being grown on these plantations were sugarcane, tobacco, but mostly cotton. While the younger and more able workers were out picking cotton or tending to other jobs on the plantation's never-ending list of things to get done, usually one elderly slave would cook lunch. This one older man or woman who was unable to spend hours outside would have the job of feeding everyone from the rations that were given to them from the masters. Beans, peas, turnips, sweet potatoes, and meat seasoned with a ham bone or pork fat would be cooked low and slow in a huge pot over coals all morning until the lunch bell sounded and everyone would gather at midday to eat and talk and live for those few brief moments that they were allowed to before the bell would ring again and they would head back out to work until the sun had set. Dinner would be a private meal in the cabins again with your family, using the rations and other food that could be scavenged, stolen, or grown, and this went on for generations. Like all things, change and innovation makes its way into life. The food rations and gardens were still not enough to be able to feed everyone, especially in the winter when nothing grew from the land. However, The land in the south was teeming with rabbits, opossums, and squirrels, and so these animals and their valued protein began to be hunted and added to the meals. The rivers and lakes on the plantations were full of catfish that the landowners didn't want to eat, and so the slaves would catch the fish and learn how to dip the fillets of white flesh into cornmeal and fry them, making fried fish, or rubbing them in dried hot peppers, searing them up over fires and making blackened spice fish, where the fat and calories helped them withstand the days of endless, non-stop work. The Native Americans also helped in the knowledge of pickling and preserving food to help make it through the winter. The cold weather was an alien landscape compared to the African homeland, and so the bounty of the gardens in the summer would be picked and preserved in salt or vinegar so that the vegetables were available all year round. The art of pickling food was passed down from generation to generation and is the direct beginning of such things as the mustards, ketchups, and relishes that we pour over our hamburgers and hot dogs now. Cornbread is not an invention of African Americans. It was invented by Native Americans. 
the corn would be ground down into cornmeal and mixed with berries, seeds, or nuts, water, cooking fat, and salt if it was available. When the knowledge of how to make cornbread was given to the slaves, the name for the delicious food was changed over time to hoe cakes because it was usually cooked on a garden hoe over the fire pits at night. The smell of the cornbread would fill the air along with the songs that also transformed over the years and became blues music, eventually turning into rock and roll. It is a heartbreaking thing to picture. As more and more ships made their way across the ocean with their terrible purpose, more and more crops were being brought with them. When the seeds were given from one plantation to the other, the knowledge that the Africans had of how to grow and care for and eat this food was used to make them some of the staples of southern food today. The other crops brought over to America on the ships to be planted and grown in America included black-eyed peas, okra, peanuts, kidney and lima beans, watermelon, licorice, and sesame. Gumbo is a dish that came from Africa and was adopted by New Orleans. The beginnings of African cuisine mixed with French and Spanish cooking became what we know as Creole. In 1685, an enslaved woman taught her master how to grow and cultivate rice. The seeds came across on a boat from Madagascar. All rice grown in America can be traced back to one boat and one woman using her knowledge to grow the plant so that she could cook the food. Watermelons, known at the time as August hams, were secretly planted and grown among the cotton plants so that the workers could have some hydration during the day. Peanuts, known as ground nuts or goobers, were used to make peanut pie and peanut soups. The act of feeding large amounts of peanuts to hogs to fatten them up before going to market was known as hogging off. When the peanut harvest came in, and it was a common sight to see on each plantation, Dozens of people huddled around fires, roasting the peanuts and eating them. The act of cooking meats low and slow over the fire pits and eating them by dipping them in sauce is the beginning of Southern barbecue. The offcuts of meat that the landowners didn't want to eat were handed off, and the methods of cooking the ribs, shanks, neck bones, tails, and every other part of the animal that wasn't wanted were passed down from person to person. Even the chicken breast, which was considered trash, was given to the slaves, who would batter it in cornmeal and fry it, making the first fried chicken. The act of rendering pork fat over a fire in a large pot until it was liquid and then deep-frying foods was a tradition that was invented out of necessity. The extra calories that frying food in fat gives the people energy that they needed to survive. Even coffee beans from Ethiopia and the knowledge of how to dry, roast, and grind the beans to make coffee came from the enslaved. All of this, all of these things that we take for granted came from these small cabins and the people that had no other choice but to make and eat what they could find. It is discomforting. It is. There is no other way around that. 
It didn't take long before the slave masters were noticing the food and would have African cooks in their kitchens making food for their families instead of white cooks because the food was better. The food traditions of the Europeans mixed with the Africans and southern food was created. Even George Washington fired his white chef on his Virginia plantation and instead appointed a black head cook after he and his wife began eating what had become available on their farm. That chef's name was Hercules Posey, or Uncle Harkless. He was born into slavery in 1748 in Virginia. He cooked for the president at Mount Vernon and even was brought by Washington to cook for him in Philadelphia, where the temporary national capital was at the time. Martha Washington's grandson remembered Hercules as being a highly accomplished and proficient chef, as good as anyone else in the United States. He was called the commander in the kitchen. He did everything, including souffles, almond pudding, trifles, chicken, and kidneys. Hercules had eight assistants, stewards, butlers, undercooks, and waiters. He cooked the food in a huge fireplace that was full of a series of iron pots, hooks, and cranes to lift and move the kettles. The job was long and hard, especially in the summers when the heat from the kitchen would combine with the heat from the sun and make the kitchen almost unbearable. Every single day, Hercules and his cooks would build a fire, burn it down to the coals, and gauge the temperature by hand, knowing when to cook and for how long by simply turning their palms towards the blaze. Because Hercules was so important to Washington, he became somewhat of a celebrity in Philadelphia, walking around the open-air markets buying produce and meat for his kitchen with a gold-top cane and a purple overcoat. He was allowed to sell the leftovers from his meals and make extra money, a privilege that did not extend to anyone else. In 1789, at the age of 49, Hercules ran away, escaping his slavery. Louis-Philippe, the future king of France, was visiting George Washington the day that Hercules ran away, and even noted it in his diary in a passage dated April 5, 1797. It said, the general's cook ran away, being now in Philadelphia, and left a little daughter of six at Mount Vernon, and managed to make it to freedom. Boudoin adventured that the little girl must be deeply upset that she would never see her father again, and she answered, Oh sir, I am very glad, because he is free now. Washington kept trying to find his head cook, and Hercules remained in hiding. The former president's house steward, Frederick Kitt, sent a letter to Washington letting him know that Hercules had been spotted in Philadelphia. Since your departure, I have been making distant inquiries about Hercules, but did not till about four weeks ago hear anything from him, and that was only that he was in town. Neither do I know yet where he is, and that will be very difficult to find out the secret manner necessary to be observed on the occasion. George Washington had 124 slaves on his plantation and 153 other slaves owned by Martha Washington's family. Upon his death, his will stated that his slaves were to be freed. In 1801, Martha Washington wrote a letter saying that she had heard that Hercules was in Manhattan. He probably never knew that he was now legally free in Virginia and that he did not have to live in hiding anymore. He died on May 15, 1812, in New York City, a free man. in the morning
The food that we eat always has a story. Sometimes that story is not one we really want to hear, but it is important that we do. The gifts that African slaves gave to the world when the world gave less than nothing to them is something that we all need to realize and appreciate. The next time you eat something that came from the hands and mouths of those who through suffering and hardship created beautiful and soul-filling food, maybe take a moment to think about it. I am guilty of ignorance. We are all guilty of ignorance. We can all do better to remember and learn from the lessons of the past. And we should probably all start now. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark, and produced by Timothy McDonald. Our theme song was switched up today and was Smokestack Lightning by Howling Wolf. I want to give this week's shout out to Holland's Hap Hoon Restaurant in Amsterdam. If you are in the area or passing through that amazing city, please stop by and say hello from us. I want to thank Roy Choi and John Favreau and Netflix for letting us talk about them this week. And be sure to look for The Chef Show coming June 7th. If you want to write to us for any reason at all, please send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. And please don't forget to rate and review the show. It really helps to spread the word about us. We are back next week with a new episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And until then, have a great service and have a great week. Shut